beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? Well, Sean, I'm doing pretty good. The sun is shining, my heart's open, and we have a fabulous guest and a friend of mine that, uh, that's here to talk about what she's doing. Excellent. We have with us Bonnie Tompkins, and Bonnie holds a Bachelor of Public Health specializing in palliative care. She currently works with Pallium Canada as the Compassionate Communities National Lead, which has her focusing on mobilizing compassionate communities across Canada. She has also led two compassionate community initiatives in Burlington and Niagara West, Ontario. She sits on the steering committee for the Ontario Caregivers Coalition, contributor to cancerandwork.ca, involved in COP for HPCO piloting undergrad palliative certification with Pallium and Brock University, and collaborates with colleagues in the UK on PH initiatives. Her interest in palliative care developed through personal experiences as a caregiver to her late partner who died while completing her PH. How are you today, Bonnie? I'm good. Excellent. Yeah, a lot to talk about. Palliative care seems to be the theme of (laughs) your life. It definitely is. Well, more than anything, because I come at it sort of from this compassionate communities piece, it's really, I think of it broader than just palliative care. So I'll do a little um, definition education. Palliative care, you know, we would like to think about it as we should engage with it when um, a patient, you know, we think has a life-limiting illness. So that can be maybe finding out that you have a terminal diagnosis or it could even just be that you're declining um, quite quickly from old age, right? You're becoming a lot more frail. End-of-life care falls under that, but that's really kind of those last few months and weeks. And the piece that I'm very much interested in is that compassionate community. So the idea being supporting people through when they're on the journey of a loss, so death, they are dying, whether you're the caregiver or the patient, and bereavement, as well as caregiving, right? So the idea of helping support those caregivers as well. So it's, that's kind of the community language. You know, the term means that you guys are looking at people who are, who are ill, who, who are dealing with some things, patients, and it's a different category of that now. You know, it, it's like a general terminology. Someone like me who goes around, like, you know, you hear stories of that, like hospice and things, but you're not, that's as far as you know the, in terms of the terminology. Like palliative is a, is a specific term that maybe not everybody knows, but you kind of get the feeling around it. But yeah, there's a whole network of individuals like yourself who are there to kind of help manage and organize this branch of our society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, palliative care and end-of-life care are the clinical terminology, and they're transitioning as well. I mean, palliative care used to be maybe only in the last year of life, but we're trying to, we see the benefit, research tells us there's benefit to having people sort of start to explore those palliative care pieces as soon as we realize that they are on a terminal trajectory or path. And so what actually, before we get going into when you started doing this, what were you wanting to do prior? Because I'm guessing all the stuff you wanting to, to be in palliative care started uh, with your experiences. So before your experiences with your husband uh, passing away, what were you wanting to do? 
also in my previous life, career-wise, I was into fitness and health, right? So promoting people to be healthy. And I did that through the gym setting and managed a gym for 20 years and personal trained, which I still do personal train. And then I just did a lot of volunteer work. And I actually volunteered with the Halton Public Health Department for many, many years. And that's when I started to think, if I ever went back to school, you know, I would like to look at this piece of sort of quality of life. That's what I call it, right? So quality of life is many pieces. It's the physical, it's the mental, it's the spiritual, you know, it's all of that, right? And so when I went back to school, you know, I went back going, okay, uh, I'm not going to go back and get a kinesiology, but I'll get something else that's going to help promote quality of life for the people that live in Canada and around me. And that's sort of how I went back for public health. You know, had the aspirations of medical school potentially, and obviously at the current moment, not there. That's interesting. So could you tell us a little about sort of maybe the struggles you went through and what you've learned through your own experiences with your husband's illness? Yeah, sure. So part of the reason I went back to school was because we knew that he was going to pass away. And we knew quite early on, once he was diagnosed, he had sort of that five-year window was given. And so we decided Uh, He was English and, of course, very chivalrous and said, okay, well, I can't take care of you for the rest of my life, so let me give you some more education. Um, And that's basically what he did. And that's why I went back to school. But then certainly as time went on, we really started to see sort of those gaps that you hear about in research where people are falling through, right? And we thought, you know, we talked a lot, the two of us, and we thought, all the time we're going, okay, we're both middle class, fairly educated people, and we're falling through these gaps, right? And, you know, he he kind of became the ambassador in the chemo ward at Sunnybrook because, you know, he would come home talking about women who had just given birth, and now they were hooked up to a bag of chemo, and they were crying because they were never really told what was going to happen and what to expect. He talked about... Uh, you know, people being in there who just immigrated to the country and they had to start chemo and they were crying and they didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen. And so because he basically did chemo almost nonstop for five years, became sort of the the guy on the ward who'd go around and sit with the newbies and kind of tell them, okay, here's what it's going to be like and here's where you need to go and here's the things you should ask for and sort of that kind of thing. He became that ambassador when he was there for chemo. So um, it was really interesting because we kind of started to talk about this at that level, right? And I guess because I was in public health, that certainly made sense to me. Um, And then he did, we did get that day where we went in for chemo, but um, the oncologist met with us and said, you know, the gist of it is, is you're in organ failure, which I I had a sinking suspicion because I could see that his fingernails and the whites of his eyes were kind of yellow, so I knew that there was liver issues going on there. And so he said, you know, we think you have two weeks to two months. We can't do anything more for you now. You know, I wish you all the best. I'm going to transfer you to a palliative care physician. So it's abrupt. And this is, you know, this is a part of the system that really is trying to change and we were handed to a palliative care physician, but that palliative care physician had a four-month waiting list, and it was the only physician in our area. So when the secretary called and gave me an appointment, she, you know, it was four months out, and I said to her, frankly, I was like, he'll be dead by then. So if you could get something sooner, that would be really helpful. 
but we didn't. And so basically it fell on my shoulders uh, or our shoulders for him to be taken care of at home because I didn't know what to do. And, you know, people have commented now when I speak about it going, well, you're a public health student, you should have known. You know what? I'm sorry. When you're a caregiver and you're exhausted and you're tired and you're just trying to keep your head above water, that's what it is. And you put out the immediate fires every day. And if there's room for anything else, awesome. But most time there isn't, right? And so what ended up happening is my community came to my rescue. Like they truly did. And this sort of makes sense to me because I'm from New Brunswick and this is how I grew up. But, you know, they came to my rescue and they fed us. They walked our dog. They mowed our lawn. They did our house maintenance. They, you know, anything that they could get involved in, they did. He refused to allow me to stop going to school because I was halfway through my second semester of third year. But I had was just stricken with anxiety for leaving the house. So what my neighborhood did and anybody who wanted to visit is sort of I created a schedule of when I was out of the house and everybody took turns signing up and it was their responsibilities to sit with him. And maybe if they were signing up for the morning shift, so to speak, it was their responsibility to get him some breakfast and get him coffee and whatever else, right? So it was like, you sign up for this time slot, here's your responsibilities in that time slot. I'm a bit of an organizer, so that's how I work. But, you know, they came to the door offering for help, and I quickly put them to work. And they kept us going for three and a half months. So he passed away just shy of his appointment with his palliative care physician. Now, in the end, because I had done a bit of work with the Carpenter Hospice in Burlington, I was able to get in with them near the end. And, you know, thankfully, he did get to pass away in the hospice with them at Carpenter Hospice, which gave me five days of sort of being able to go back to the partner and not being the the caretaker, which I think is a wonderful thing for me to sort of be left with. So, yeah, basically seeing... You know, being in the trenches, as I call it, seeing what I saw, seeing how we were left, seeing how hard it was to find resources from the aspects of a patient or caregiver who's extremely tired. You have an enormous amount of anxiety, confusion, fog, all that sort of stuff. Now, I do this work and every day I approach it going, okay, put yourself back in those shoes where you're struggling to just survive. How do I put these resources? How do I put this information out in a language that you're going to be able to pick up? That kind of idea. How do I help people understand that they can play a very active role for your neighbor who's down the street? And that super active role could just be going up to the front door and saying, you know what? I understand you guys are going through a hard time. I'm really sorry about that. Here's how I'm going to help you. I'm going to mow your lawn for the next six months. Don't even worry about it. I got it. It may seem like really tiny and it may you, as the person offering, may think, oh my gosh, like I'm hardly doing anything. But let me tell you, from that caregiver, never having to worry about what my property looks like is awesome. Never having to worry about putting out my garbage and recycling, awesome. My neighbors walked my dog for six months. I never walked her, right? But that was important to me because she was another thing I had to manage and I had to worry about, right? But I didn't in the end. Everybody managed her for me. And, you know, and I'm sure she went through the process herself much better than she could have, right? 
So, yeah. So that's why I'm I am where I am today uh and so super passionate about it because I think of all the conversations he had with me about the people he would meet and how scared and terrified they were and I think from the caregiver piece. And so I'm trying to support. I think it's a two-prong approach. There is the medical piece that is never going to change. You know, even with bereavement, there is the role for the professional. But I do think that we need to get back to taking a bit of power in the community, realizing we can do this. We used to do this 100 years ago or even maybe 75 years ago. We can do this. We just need to maybe plant that seed again as to what they can do, right? Yeah, Sean would like to say like in, in tribal times, right? When people were in tribes, yeah. everyone took care of each other. But now it's everything so individual and you're sort of left to fend for yourself. So I think it's beautiful how your community came together and gave you that relief for you to have so much to reduce your stress, to finish your degree, but also to have those moments with your husband to see the beauty in him, right? Because when you're running around doing all this stuff, you can you forget, you know, what it's all about. And I'm glad you had some of those moments and you, you saw kindness in this world. And that's something we don't really see a lot of on TV or in the media. And that's what you're showcasing, how we can be kind to each other. And what a radical idea that is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah, and I think the thing, too, is while I focus on this end-of-life piece, you know, I think that this really is starting to blossom into, you know, well, we can just be kind to each other in any point of life, right? <laughs> right. Which, I, you know, I think is awesome as well. And so can you talk about what Compassionate Communities is i know you you've led a couple of um communities to do that so can you talk about what that is and what your current job is and how it relates sure so compassionate communities the overarching goal is so it's a population approach right so that means we're including everybody no matter how old you are you have a role to play right and so compassionate communities certainly here in canada a lot of the initiatives that are going on are based off the compassionate city model that Dr. Alan Kelly here released back in May of 2015. So its goal is a few things. One is, is we need to get back to recognizing all aspects of life. So, um, you know, all those pieces that are a part of that natural journey, right? So we do a really great job of celebrating birth, right? Everybody gets involved in all these little ways, uh, but we don't do a great job with death and loss and caregiving, right? Like it's taboo, it's quiet, don't talk about it, don't ask for help, that kind of stuff, right? So we need to get back to, yes, it's not a celebration per se, but it should still be a community event. And that's what we need to get back to. The other piece is recognizing that, you know, death, dying, loss and caregiving it happens every day. So that means... You know, when someone walks into your local library, they could be someone who's on one of those journeys, right? So, you know, so what we want to work with is in these everyday institutions or um, locations, sectors, whatever you want to call it, we start to help them figure out, well, how could I help someone if they came in and they were on this journey, right? What, What could I do to help them, right? And that's a big piece of it. We want to create that community engagement. So that means the art galleries. It does mean the library. It means everything, a workplace, schools, you name it. Everybody has a role to play. And then the last piece is the idea that it's not just the medical professional's job to provide support. 
that it is the community's job as well, right? There's no reason why you can't step up sort of to that plate. And we've kind of been trained that Ooh, it's the medical professional's job now, not mine, right? We've gotten removed from that. You know, I have many conversations around funerals and, you know, the idea of someone dies and they're whisked off to the funeral home and then you don't see them again until they're in their suit or whatever. They've got makeup on and blah, 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 right? And so I have to say Ian was cremated, so my late partner was cremated, and I had to identify his body. And we specifically said, no, he's not to be, nothing is to be done to him. He's just, I will identify his body, you know, and I was warned that it would be in its raw, raw forms a few days later, but he was to not be embalmed. Like he's like, I don't want all these chemicals to be leached into the ground and what have you. So he said, you're going to have to identify me bare bones, so to speak, right? Which I grew up on a farm. I We raised chickens, so we hatched them and we celebrated that, but then we slaughtered them. And so I understand there's a beginning and there's an end, right? And I think that that really helped me to see, to sort of see him in his raw forms after he had passed, right? So it concreted that, okay, this is happening and he's no longer here on earth and and to see that raw piece. So yeah, it's just that uh, sort of all of that. I, I love what you just said because, again, like, you know, Josh alluded to that, but I, I am a believer and, and I really feel like, you know, that whole tribal thing and rituals are important. And that was, to me, that's a ritual. Like, you know, you identifying the body or, or just funerals in general, um, it's, we, we kind of shy away from a lot of that stuff. We get very clinical um, with it. And I think we need to reverse that and look through throughout human history and there's a many countless examples of throughout human history where we've made that a part of communities or society. You know, we've made certain rituals, like even just get down to like having a conversation with a child, you know, is a lot of people now, they don't do it because they don't want to, you know, scare the child or overload the child or whatever. But from what I'm learning about grief, it's actually important to have those conversations, you know, with children because they are so fragile and vulnerable and smart. And why wouldn't you? You know, my take on it is the kid's going to learn no matter what. So you might as well yeah. be uh, a part of that information. But yeah, you know, that essence of what you've just communicated is, is what I believe in, you know, is that to be able to hang out and know your neighbors. I know it's hard now. A lot of us don't know our neighbors, but even reach out. Like, let's say you live in an apartment building and you have an elderly, elderly neighbor who's living alone. You know, maybe they don't speak English. You know, at least reach out to that person and say, hey, if you ever need help, you know, you can knock on my door or I can call someone for you or call the police or call an ambulance or, or do stuff for you. You know, and it doesn't take an extreme amount of money, which, you know, again, everybody talks about healthcare costs and dollars and stuff. Well, let's get back to just actions, you know, time. You know, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the two, the, so two things around that. One is, it's really great if you can reach out and say, if you need anything, I'm here for you. But often from personal experience and research facts this up is that if you, if you put it that way, most often they'll never actually you know, they'll never actually take your help because one, it can be one of two reasons. One is they don't feel like they're burdening you. Two is having to create a list of what you can do to help them is just more work. Yeah. And, I, and and that's, I, I fully attest to the second piece. So it's 
almost better for you, just as a suggestion, it would be better for people to go and say, okay, you know what? Like, do you need help with your lawn? Do you need someone to get your groceries? You know, give them ideas because then they can quickly go, you know what? I could use help in that, right? The chances of uptake increasing the uptake of them actually saying yes is much higher if you go with ideas on what you can do versus just leaving it open-ended. And then, yeah, and sort of the other piece, I guess, I just wanted to speak to the my role now is really my role now is to take the experience, the work that I've been doing in Burlington, in Niagara West, and sort of helping uh, bolster up and uh, foster all these projects across Canada. So it may be in resources, supports, you know, whatever it is that they sort of need, because we would love to see a lot more of these going across Canada, which already now I just did an inventory the other day. I think there are about 15 of them going between BC and Ontario, and we're starting to have interest in Nova Scotia and Alberta. So more work to be done yet, but um, it's starting. Yeah, no, and that's that's what you need, that needs to happen. It just needs to start. But man, I, I'm really happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that programs like these exist and they're being promoted and they're, you know, even just in my area, I'm from Niagara. I'm glad that that exists here because I like to see all of us get back to being uh, communities. And, you know, it it's tricky because again, we are a diverse population and everybody has their own distinct rituals and customs and stuff like that. But, you know, we're humans, we can get over that. We can just get together and communicate and break through those. And that's a great point is that, you know, obviously, you know, like even like if I need something and someone asks, comes up to me and says, do you need help? Obviously, for me, even the first reaction is, no, I'm good. But yeah. so it might take more. It might take, you know, understanding some things or, or not phrasing in a yes or no question. <laughs> Maybe saying, hey, I noticed, uh, you know, you're, you, you haven't been walking your dog lately if they have a pet and say, you know, I, I don't mind, you know, I'm free on evening, you know, so thank you. That's a great, great tip. Yeah, well, and, and those are the pieces that I'm hoping to help foster, right, is to try and break those barriers down that we know exist. It's just how can we uh, break them down so that, once again, we increase sort of that uptake between the neighbors helping that family or that unit. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a lonely road sometimes, and it's a lonely life sometimes. And, uh-huh. you know, you saw that, your husband saw that as he was going through chemotherapy, seeing those people also going through it scared. You know, no, no yep. information like that's that's scary. And I'm happy to see that now you're paying it forward in that way where you're helping others try to lessen that feeling of being alone or being scared during this really scary time. Well, yeah. And I guess that's one of the things that we kind of, you know, we always had that conversation, right? Like we just started dating. We'd only been dating maybe about a year or so. We had known each other previously, but just kind of hadn't agreed come out and said we're interested in each other and do you want to date and you know so we always kept saying to each other we're like oh why is this happening to us and and he would say there is some reason you have a gift for gab and I'm on this journey for a reason we'll figure it out eventually and I think as he went along the journey more and I was doing the you know that population health piece in school we started to go oh maybe this is you know because I think sometimes you have to give a meaning right to survive and I think that that's what we were doing is giving giving this crappy time. There's no way around it. Some sort of meeting to keep me moving forward, right? And and that's what I say to people. They say all the time, how do you do this? 
every day. And I say, well, you know what? It takes a really crappy time and it sort of repackages it in a positive way. So, you know, and and I think that that's why I'm as passionate um, as I am. To, and I just keep my head down to do whatever I can to help foster more of this to happen. Well, I know you're making, you're making waves in what you're doing. And sometimes it may seem slow, but, you know, it, it takes people saying this stuff and doing these things to take notice on what we could be doing as, as a community, as a culture, uh, when it comes to the dying. Because we're all going to be dying one day. And we want to be, when I'm dying, I would want other people to offer me that sort of stuff or to be able to have my loved one some extra time. And so, like, once we think about our own death a little bit, I think it, it comes natural that, okay, yeah, we want to foster this as we move forward in our culture. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, your your own grieving process? So we talked about sort of the, the stuff that you did and your caretaking responsibilities and how and what helped. What about after you, after he died, what, what happened there with your grief and what helped you through that process? Well, you know, I think you're, so I'll just kind of go through it. So certainly you're on that adrenaline rush. You know, my house was full of people, which was wonderful. My family came from New Brunswick to support me. He didn't want a funeral. He just, he wanted a celebration. You know, he was definitely the the guy that entered the room and everybody went, oh, he's here kind of thing, right? So we threw a big celebration, which was mandatory. You had to uh, wear color. And we, my, my sister and my best friend stood at the door of this, you know, fairly nice hotel uh, restaurant and they handed out scarves and ties. If you showed up in a an outfit that was blah, black, gray, whatever it was, you either had to put on this bright tie, which was most likely a tie of his, or you had to wear a scarf if you were a female, right? Like it was mandatory. We made it clear in the sort of um, invite that happened because there were 400 plus people there that, you know, this is what he wanted. He really didn't want this to be doom and gloom. He wanted this to be, you're going to get a nice cocktail, you're going to get some appetizers, and you're going to have a little fun. And I think if you were to ask anybody, I think that that's pretty much what we achieved. But, you know, after that, I think that's when that's when things set in. And, and one of the things, again, that I try and focus on is it was so wonderful to have everybody there and kind of keep me walking that sort of line of list of things that had to be done. But then all of a sudden the door closes like two or three days later, maybe a week. And and it's freaking lonely. Like you go from bustling. And even though my neighbors kind of tried to check in on me, but it was really tough. Like you went from all these people checking in on to you until checking in on you to like almost crickets, right? So... That was really tough. It was. It really, really was. Uh, but I also had caregiver burnout, which is part of my um, passion, is to change that, where I just slept and slept and slept. But I think on my sort of reflections over the summer, because he passed away five days after my last exam, which was a part of the deal, so to speak, that we made with me staying in school, is that if I was to stay in school, he had to keep eating and drinking because, you know, uh, it was unrealistic for me to write exams after he passed or things like that, right? So him and we had to make those hard sort of negotiations in those final weeks. And 
so yeah, so once the summer sort of, you know, through the summer, I sort of processed, I, I don't even think I worked, went back to my job, I really just kind of tried to wade through everything. And again, for me, I think some of the pieces that were really important, I think, in helping me be as good with it as I could be was that, you know, in those last five days when he got to the hospice, I got to just be his partner, right? I didn't have to be showering him, feeding him, those sort of things, right? So that was, for me, I think it really helped me after sort of giving, getting to have that bit of intimate time again. You know, seeing him, I think that was closure, like seeing him at the funeral home before he was cremated was I think it helped me. I knew clearly when I talked to other people, you know, I seemed to have been very clear right away on what was happening and what had happened and what this meant versus I have friends who lost their husband suddenly from a massive heart attack or, you know, different things. And so they were struggling and they were, you know, challenging their faith and things like that. Maybe that's my growing up in a sort of farm life too, right? With that very clear understanding of there's a start and there's a finish. But, you know, as well, and Josh, you and I have talked about this over the last few years or so um, around, you know, I never really had a lot of dreams, right? And so for me, I think because of how my journey played out, and I don't know, maybe because I interact with him or to speak on the almost daily basis. Maybe this is why it is, but the only time sort of I've, you know, went, oh, I really, you know, it would be great if I could just sit and talk to him or, you know, because that, because we had such an open conversation and we had, we had those frank conversations all the time to the point that sometimes our family found us like inappropriate, they would say, because they weren't comfortable <laughs> with them, right? But, you know, I I haven't really, you know, speaking of dreams, I haven't really necessarily had a lot of dreams, except when I was feeling, I've been feeling lost over the last two years since his passing, right? All of a sudden, I finished university and I don't have a job in the field I'm interested in actually doesn't exist. The government doesn't recognize it in the aspects of death, dying, loss in the public health stream, right? So here I am chasing this idea that people are looking looking at me like, okay, weirdo, go away, right? Like, you don't register on anything we're working on kind of thing, right? So there have been a lot of days where I've been extremely lost and felt like I was spinning and... And then all of a sudden, I will have a dream where, you know, he just shows up. And when I wake up in the morning, for me, you know, I think, I go, okay, all right, so this is what happened in the dream. He came in at this point, so that tells me this. So it's kind of funny to me because that's what we did for almost 10 years. Like, that was our relationship, right? We always bounced ideas off each other, whether it was our careers or our work, what it was. And we were always each other's sounding board. And so I guess, you know, certainly the work I do helps me, can hinder me at times too, because sometimes it's like I'm tired of talking about him every day. But then sometimes it's good. Like, you know, when I graduated from university, it was a really big deal because I didn't even want to go back for fourth year. And then when I finish a big project, you know, I think he would be so proud. I don't 
only do it for that purpose, but I reflect on that. And then maybe that's how I keep moving forward and I keep him sort of involved. And then obviously, you know, when I'm really stressed out, feeling like I'm spinning and out of control, he shows up. There hasn't been a lot of those days since he passed, but he'll show up in my dreams and I go, okay, you know, I've figured out what I need to do now. And and I move in that direction. And so far, knock on wood, that it has not failed me yet. Well, thank you for sharing that stuff and your experiences and everything you've gone through and, and being like very candid here. And it's funny about your dreams and how they come when you're stressed. And I've actually heard that from a lot of people where they'll come and sometimes the cease will offer advice if that's what they need. Uh, and it seems like he's just, he just, he's just there. He doesn't actually say anything. Is that true? Yeah, no. And, and sometimes it's not even like, it's not even been that I saw his face or I interacted with them. Sometimes it's just that I have the sense that he's present. Mm, that's interesting. So if you yeah. could, let's say, are you stressed today? <laughs> no, I just, it was a big workload today, but okay. no. So you probably won't get a dream today then about him just standing there. So now that you're, you're more calm, what dream would you want to have? <laughs> you know, I'd like to just sit down and have sort of a frank conversation about, just get to talk to him about what I'm doing, right? And show him what has happened, right? Like, goes back to that, I, I would like to answer that question that we had, like, why are we on this journey? What are you going to do with this? And so, although I don't necessarily align with a faith per se, but I do believe that there is, I do believe there is a purpose and I do believe in reincarnation. And so, I hope someday we'll meet again and we may not meet in the same forms as in partners, but I hope I do meet him again. But, you know, and so maybe he is aware of what I'm doing or maybe he's not. But if I got one choice, I think that would be, would be it, would be to just sit down over a glass of wine as we often did and talk about, hey, here's what I'm doing. What do you think? You know, that kind of idea. I like that. And, and so what would he be wearing? Oh, I don't know. Well, he's always, you know, he was a salesman. He sold Audis. So uh, maybe we're driving an Audi because that was a big, big linking uh, thing in our relationship. And uh, I don't know, maybe we're, he's in a nice business suit. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Are you still having wine in the car? Yeah, no, we can't then, can we? No, you can't do that, eh? Yeah. <laughs> can in the we'll dream drive, we'll can drive the dream one world. to the restaurant, and then we'll sit at the restaurant and we'll have some wine. No, you can do it in the dream world. You, just, you know what you That's do? True. You take a, you got a picnic basket in the back of the Audi, right? Resting there. That's really right. Nice. Or no, no, by now it's one of those Audis that drives themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's go oh, there. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, we're driving an R8. It's, watch it. We're in an RE. It's driving itself. We're drinking wine and having a conversation. I like Perfect. it. Why limit yourself? You're in an N NSX, um, which is yeah. the top. <laughs> People don't Perfect. know NSX. I love like, it. Sold. Yeah, you, you know what it is. It's a sports $300,000 machine. <laughs> you know, it's self-driving. You've got a picnic basket right. in the back. Well, I guess you can drink now. So. Yeah, you don't need yeah, that's what I mean. That's perfect, right? Uh, I like that. And so if he's dressed up, are you dressed up too? Uh, sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've become more of a girly girl now okay. that I'm in the business world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's cool. And then uh, is there a restaurant you guys, because you said you're going to be going to a restaurant. So is there a restaurant you guys always went to? Like, what was your favorite place? Um, You know what? It would just be Italian. We traveled to Italy a lot when we knew he was passing because we both just loved the culture and the aspects. We loved that it was sort of, well, it was very community oriented. I remember the first time we went after he had his first round of chemo. A friend of his had said, you know what, you guys go, here's my place, just stay there. And it was in a little teeny town called Popoli up in um, sort of the mountains. And we used to go to the park every day. And in Italy, you have a siesta in the afternoon, right, in the late afternoon, basically. And so we loved it. Like you'd go to the park and you'd see all the older men on one bench and then you'd see all the older ladies on the other bench. And then the kids were just running willy-nilly through the park and it was everybody's responsibility to just look after the kids. So it's not, you know, it's that community idea, right? And the old men were complaining about their wives and the wives were complaining about the men, but everybody was happy and they were laughing. And, um, you know, so I think we really embraced that that um, sort of culture sat well with us. So I guess if we had an option of anything, it would be sitting and having a good, true sort of Italian, like their food is very clean. It's not processed and we'd be having a nice Italian dinner. That sounds uh, picturesque. It sounds amazing. I can just see like some cobbled streets or something. That's a great uh, image and I really hope you get uh, that and many more in the future and to continue your, um, you know, honoring your, your late husband and his memory and Again, doing the the amazing work that you're doing is it's it's so vital. It's important, and I love seeing it happen, especially in my neighborhood. And I hope communities all, all across, not only Canada but all across the world, can get more involved in that. We have to, you know, have these conversations, and um, you know, not to be afraid about it. And in fact, it can help a relationship get better if you share that type of community involvement and grief. And, and that's really where the where the heart of that is. And uh, again, thank you so much with uh, the work that you're doing, Bonnie. And I was wondering, is there any place where people can kind of check out uh, the work that you're involved in, any websites? Yeah, so my Twitter account is certainly very busy with, you know, what's going on compassionate community-wise across the country in general and stuff that I'm involved in, but just in general. So my Twitter handle is uh, ph, the number four, PC, so Public Health for Palliative Care, basically. And Pallium Canada has a Compassionate Communities tab. So Pallium um, is a national palliative care organization who is about education. And so for the last uh, 17 years, they've been focused on clinical education because there was no education actually in medical school or nursing, that kind of idea. So it was all done after. And so now they want to support the community piece. And that's why I'm on board. So I just started with them and we're feverishly working away and updating the website and things like that. So certainly that's another area that you can have a peek to see what's happening. Excellent. I'd like to hear about that in the future. We'll have to have you on again to talk more about how that's going. And yeah, I hope everybody can check out your information, your Twitter and uh, the organization that you're working with. Uh, It's doing such great work. Um, As far as our platform, please check us out at griefdreams.ca for more information. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And uh, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. 
So we like to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. The new beginning. beginning.